You're listening to Self-Publishing Journeys, the weekly podcast for all new and aspiring self-published authors. Stand by for tips, resources, hints, and practical techniques to help you on your own self-publishing journey. Meet indie authors at different stages of their writing careers and hear how they manage to get their own books published and making sales. For show notes, web links, and useful resources, please head to selfpublishingjourneys.com. Now, here's your show host, self-published author and digital marketer, Paul Teague. Hello and welcome to Self-Publishing Journeys episode number 90 for Monday the 20th of November 2017. My guest today is Margaret Ski, who grew up in Ulster at the height of the Troubles, but now lives with her husband in the Scottish borders. She was awarded the Beryl Bainbridge Award for Best First-Time Author 2014 and Historical Fiction Winner in the HarperCollins Alan Titchmarsh People's Novelist Competition for her debut novel, Turn of the Tide. The sequel, A House Divided, was longlisted for the Historical Novel Society U Novel Award in 2016. Margaret is passionate about well-researched, authentic historical fiction and providing a you-are-there experience for the reader. When we chatted for the podcast, I started by asking Margaret where her love of history came from. As a child, I, I, I always loved history. I was very aware of my own personal history as a child of the plantation and so very interested in Scotland right from, from very young. Uh, and then I did a PhD into uh, researching the Ulster Scots vernacular. And that took me straight back into the plantation period. And I just got really immersed in 16th and early 17th century history of Ulster and Scotland. Now, I've got to dive into your Scottish credentials a little bit, because I know that you grew up yeah. in Ulster. So is it born Scotland, grew up Ulster, returned to Scotland? Is that, have I got that right? No, it's oh. born in Ulster. Oh, right, that way around. Um, of, um, of Ulster Scots parentage and um, stayed in, in Ulster until I came across to Scotland to university. Briefly went back home for a couple of years, but I married a Scot, so now I'm back here living and have done for about 30 years. So does that make you Scottish then? No. <laughs> <laughs> this is what I'm digging at. I'm <laughs> Definitely not. I am Ulster Scots, though. Right. Um, which is kind of close. Okay. So now I love Scottish history. My wife is, is Scottish and uh, I fell in love with the place. We went for a visit to Scotland when I was in my teenage years and I just, I've always loved it. And I love the history. I think the history is so strong. Now, this is presumably what fired your imagination. Yes. Uh I think probably, like a lot of people of my age, I started with Mary, Queen of Scots, mm-hmm. um, and read, you know, all the Jean Pleadies and Antonia Fraser's biography and this kind of thing, and became very interested in Mary and all her history. But when I started looking at the plantation, that took me further back, and then I discovered that actually James was quite interesting too and particularly all the infighting among the nobles and so on um, in Scotland was quite dramatic. I'm also incredibly interested in architecture. In fact, I'm probably a frustrated architect, hmm. but um, it, was, it became very sort of obvious to me that when you looked at the architecture of Scotland, the tower houses as compared to the architecture of people of similar status in England at the same time, 
in England, they were living in nice manor houses with gardens and mullioned windows and very comfortable. And in Scotland, they were living in these very forbidding, tall, narrow tower houses where you had to get up in through a removable stair to the second story. And it was really clear that the violence in Scotland was incredibly pervasive. That's what I love about your history. Now, you know that I'm based in Carlisle. So when you mention uh, Mary, Queen of Scots, you'll know that she was uh, in Carlisle uh, for, for some time. Um, and also because I'm on the borders, we do have a lot of fortified farms around here uh, as well. So we're, I'm kind of on, on the border of your, your sort of history. Um, just right, right on it, because Carlisle's been quite important in everything that went on in Scotland, isn't it? Oh, absolutely, with the reverse. Uh, I mean, I'm just on the other side of the border. I'm about an hour north of Carlisle. Oh, right. Um, uh, in about the middle. Hmm. And uh, I, I used to do quite a lot of, we used to drive up and down to Carlisle quite a bit, actually. Um, and the border reavers didn't really see a particularly strong border between England and Scotland. Um, it was very, very fluid. And they fought against each other on both sides of the border quite freely and it didn't particularly matter to the reavers whether you were technically English or technically Scots if you were a family that you fought you fought and the reavers of course um, kept pinching cattle didn't they over, over the border I think that was their big thing wasn't it pinching cattle but not necessarily over the border pinching cattle from your neighbours <laughs> if, you, if they happen to not be your friends <laughs> And this is why I love Scottish history. I mean, I, I can remember going up, one of the places that had an effect on me, I think it's up, um, it must be up, I'm um, just trying to think where it is, up in Venezuela, I think, is uh, well of the seven heads. And to me, this typifies Scottish history, and that it was a load of chieftains uh, meeting, and, and one chieftain got the others drunk. And while they were drunk, they just chopped all their heads off. And, and I mean, there's just nothing quite like this gory, wonderful, treacherous history. I think English history is just a little bit too polite for my tastes. Well, certainly the Scottish history isn't polite, um, but that makes it really interesting. And it was because of studying the Ulster Scots and studying the plantation in County Down, which was a very different plantation, actually, from the rest of, of Ulster, uh, that I started becoming interested in the Cunninghams and the Montgomerys. And the feud that they had ran for about 150 years, and it was just tit-for-tat atrocities murder, houses being burnt out, cattle being stolen, ambushes, you name it, they did it. And they did it time and time again. And it wasn't until James finally set out to subdue the nobles, which he managed to do, that things began to settle down. <laughs> it's, it's just great, isn't it? So it lends itself really naturally, I think, to, to storytelling. Um, the, the, the reality is a great story. So to come to it from a fictional point of view must give you a wonderful opportunity as a writer. I originally wrote the first book, 70,000 words of it, from the point of view of one of the real characters, one of the key Montgomery characters. And then I discovered that that was actually quite difficult because I was feeling constrained by truth, if that's a good way to put it, because mm. he had to be in particular places at particular times. And I couldn't have him say something that there wasn't evidence for and so on. Um, 
so I ditched those 70,000 words and started again with a fictional main character and put this fictional family like Piggy in the middle between the two clans. And then they could assess both of them and move back and forwards between them and give a commentary really on what was happening. But the story became the pressures that that put on that family and their integrity and their relationships through being trapped within this conflict situation. Now, you've said something interesting there because it echoes something that Stephen A. Mackay said. Now, Stephen is also a a historical uh, author and he was at Edinburgh, where you and I met at the Amazon um, event this year. And one of the things he was saying is when you write historical novels, he's writing about um, Robin Hood, you're, as you said, constrained by things that must happen because they're historical. We, We all kind of know them. How much pressure does that put you under to make sure you get that kind of stuff right? Because there must be historians ready to pick all over it, aren't there? I put a lot of pressure on myself to get it as right as I possibly can. But you can never say you're writing accurate history because even contemporary sources are written from someone's point of view. And we don't necessarily know what acts they had to grind at the time they were writing. You can guess, but you don't necessarily know. So I do my level best to be as authentic as I can and to check sources as closely as I can. But I wouldn't ever claim to be totally historically accurate because I don't think that's practically possible. So what we've got here in your novels, then, is it? it's a, a fictional framework within uh, set events and with people that are known, are well-known in, in histories. Have I got that right? Basically, you've got a fictional family trapped in real events. Everybody else in the book is a, was a real person. And the key events in the story are historic. But obviously, I have built around that what happens to this family. And that's the fictional bit. And I think for me, the challenge was writing a story that was probably about 80% fiction but within the framework of the real people. Now, that first book that you wrote, 70,000 words, um, yep. I, I'm interested to know, did you have any run-up to that in, in terms of writing short stories, or did you go straight for the 70,000? No, I'd, I'd written short stories for far too long, really, as an excuse, as an excuse not to write a novel. Um, I'd always wanted to write a novel, but I always lacked the confidence that I could get past 3,000 words. And I'd done a lot of short stories, and quite a few of them had won competitions and done well. And it was it was a comfort zone for me, really, to think 3,000 words, I can do it. And then someone, I can't even remember who now, somebody said to me, when I said I couldn't possibly write 100,000 words, somebody said to me, well, think of it as 30 short stories except you don't have to have a new plot, you don't have to have new characters, you don't have to have a new setting. And that was like a light bulb moment for me. Um, And so I dived straight into the novel. So it just made it manageable uh, rather than this huge task that you couldn't get your head around. It broke it down into small pieces, effectively. Yes. Yes, effectively it did. 
It's a good strategy that I think I think people could learn a lot from that if they're worried about writing that many words. When when you wrote, Margaret, when you were writing, are you a, a pen and paper writer or are you a, a computer writer? I'm a computer writer. Uh, I I would use far too much paper if I was a pen and paper writer because I'm constantly changing and I like things to be neat. So if I was constantly changing, I'd have to write it all out all over again. So I go straight onto the computer. When I'm editing, though, at the end, I print out a hard copy and read it aloud to myself in on paper and put squiggles down the side everywhere that I want to change something and edit it on paper. Have you ever had any formal tuition in writing? When you were writing those short stories, were you doing uh, courses? Were you educating yourself or were you just a, a, a natural writer? Never had any tuition. Uh, I I think probably my English teacher in school thought she was being helpful, but in fact she probably wasn't. Um, I was always kind of a perfectionist, and we had, were supposed to write an essay every week, fictional essay every week at school. I would refuse to hand mine in if I didn't think it was good enough, and my English teacher let me off with that I think that was probably a mistake because it would have been better for me if I'd learned the discipline to just write anyway good bad or indifferent um, but no I've, I've always written just as it came to me and although I change lots of stuff in the novels when I write a short story the end result is very close to what just comes out first time round. when you write that first 70,000 word novel how did you feel when you realized you had to throw it away I panicked for about one evening um, and I woke up the next morning and thought this is fine and I kind of told myself that maybe I'd be able to cut and paste quite a bit of it because it was the same basic story framework in fact, I didn't use a single word of that 70,000 in the news story. But by that time, I'd come to terms with it. It's still in my attic, but I haven't looked at it since. I have a, a, a personal philosophy that that first book is the biggest learning experience you'll have when you write. You'll always keep learning all the time, incrementally. But I always think just going from A to B, that first book and writing that number of words, and you said that you'd resisted that for a long time uh, writing short stories w w would you agree with that was that your biggest learning experience oh I think so yes learning to that I actually could sustain something and learning how to develop characters in a way that you don't have to in short stories and learning that you've got more space in a short story, everything has to be incredibly tight. Uh, well, that's really good discipline anyway for a novel, but just learning that you have the additional space to... I love description. And it was a, a learning experience for me to be able to experiment with description and just enjoy myself a little bit with it before I actually had to prune it back to make sure it wasn't overblown. I mean, as a writer of short stories, it must have been quite nice to have those um, the, the restrainers off and to just be able to expand into all these words. Yes, yes, it was. 
which surprised me how liberating it felt. But I still do enjoy writing short stories. But now I, I write them when I'm stuck in whatever novel I'm writing. Then I just lay that aside and think, right, I'll write a short story for fun. One of the things I should have asked you about your short stories is, did you ever get those published in magazines? You said you had some success with uh, competitions. What, what were you doing with those short stories? Were you um, writing them with a view to getting them published and getting them out there? I basically wrote them for me, but the first two that um, I guess I felt were quite important were published in Woman and Home. Oh, lovely. Um, which, to my huge surprise, paid extremely well. Mm, they're good, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> um, the, I mean, the first one was actually a competition with them, and, and that was a very big prize. Um, and then they took a second story that I sent, which was good. I did think about other sort of weekly women's magazines, but I discovered very early on that I couldn't actually write for that market. And um, then I decided I was going to write basically for competitions and with a view to eventually publishing a collection, which I have now done. So, I mean, it's important. This is not something I've spoken about on the podcast before, um, but actually you can make a reasonable income um, taking part in competitions and also writing to magazines. When I was a student, I wrote loads of letters to magazines and short stories. And, and actually, you get quite a lot. You have quite a good hit rate sometimes. <laughs> well, certainly competitions can give you a significant um, sort of boost to your income, so to speak. But I really wanted the competitions to be able to build a writing CV so that when I was coming to the point of trying to submit a novel to somebody, I would already have some credentials that I could put in that submission. So in a sense, I was kind of quite targeted with my short stories. And the other thing I must ask you is how long the, the abandoned 70,000 words uh, script, script the book, uh, how long did that take you to write? How, how fast a writer are you with things like that? I'm incredibly slow. That seven, that 70,000 probably took about two years. Um, so it was a lot of work to abandon. That's quite frightening, I think, for somebody to, to hear that two years work, to look at that and then say, no, I'm going to have to go back to the drawing board. But having done that and then say, right, now I know what I'm doing now. What, 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 did it, what did the process look like the second time round? What changed? It was a lot faster the second time around because I, I, I knew where I was starting. I knew where I was going. I didn't actually know the route because it did become a very different story. But I did know the final scene in that first book from the moment that I started the second time around. So I was always heading towards that particular final scene. And that kind of gave me the impetus to to keep going um because i wanted to get to that that ending that i had already planned but it still took me about a year second time round um and then i did about seven edits of that book after that now that's interesting so you do your own edits to you or do you ever send out to an external editor 
I do have an external editor. Not that first book, I did seven edits of my own before I submitted it to anybody. And I tried the agent route and that didn't work. But I then submitted it to some publishers direct and it was taken on by a mainstream publisher. And they then edited it. And actually, I loved that process of the back and forwards between the publisher's editor and myself. I find that really very interesting. So when that publisher sadly was no more, um, and I was in the situation of bringing the second book out myself, I paid for an external editor. At the second time round, I only did three edits myself before it went to the external editor. And the last book that I've just finished, I only edited twice before it went to the editor. So I guess I'm getting better. <laughs> when you've uh, edited a book seven times, I mean, it must be edited to within an inch of its life. And then to send it to um, a, a, a go through the formal editing process when you're being published. Uh, I'm just interested to know how many changes, what kind of changes they make at that stage. Well, that was really interesting. Some of them were very, very small individual words that the editor would query. Now, some of those were, of course, because they were Scots words. And I either had to justify the use of it, say that I'd put it in the glossary, or I would have to think, well, how else can I phrase this then if this one is really going to be too difficult for a wider audience? Some of it was that. Some of it were individual sentences that they'd come back and say the phrasing of this one's a little bit awkward. Can you rewrite it? Twice, I think, uh, they came back with a particular scene uh, where they wanted the choreography of the scene to be rewritten because they said they couldn't visualise how the characters were moving about clearly enough. Now, that didn't necessarily mean big changes, but it was just rooting the, the characters in the land, in relation to the landscape, whether they had their back to the sea or were facing the sea, that kind of thing. So that the one of them in particular was a sword fight. And in that case, it was simply a case of clarifying all the movements that the characters were making within that sword fight so that it became very visual. So... So there was this huge sort of spread of, of changes or suggestions or queries. Sometimes I didn't change it. I dug my heels in and said, no, I'm not. But I had to justify that. Sometimes I did. And in the end, we came to a, a balance that suited us both. And did you feel it was still the book that you'd wanted to write? Oh, Absolutely. Um, I mean, I, I've heard from other people who've been through a similar process with a publisher, some of the changes that they were asked to make, and mine in the end seemed to have been a fairly light copy edit in, in, in minute detail. And, and I was absolutely happy with that. I've never had them come back and say, no, you've got to completely change this aspect of the story or, you know, we don't like the ending or you've got to change characters or whatever. I've never had anything big. And I think possibly that was because I'd done my seven edits myself first. Um, 
one of the things that they came back and asked for that I refused was I had a piece where a character says in relation to a comment that someone else has made, who has the the inclination or the time to be Joseph? Now, that was a biblical reference to Joseph in Egypt saving up food for the famine years that were to come. And the editor came back and said, well, I think you have to explain who Joseph is and, and what's happening here. And I dug my heels in with that one and said no. And the reason I said no was because the two characters within the novel who were talking to each other, in their time and in their background, they would have been so familiar with the biblical background that it would have been unrealistic for them to explain, for one to explain to the other, because they would have known. And in that circumstance, I said no, the characters know. And if the reader doesn't, then all they have to do is Google. Yes. And when you're writing historical fiction, what, I, what I'm uh, interested in here is that if you hadn't done your research properly, um, there could be all sorts of errors in the book. And I'm wondering when you get the edit, um, there's obviously the, the, the words, the structure, the drama to edit. But also, presumably, you need to get, do you a specialist editor who has some knowledge of what you're writing about? I have a fabulous editor now who is incredibly meticulous and he queries everything. Every character that I mention, every real historical character that I mention, he then goes and checks. When I've said they're in a particular place at a particular time, he goes and checks whether that's possible or not. Um, he checks things like the, when I have a journey and people on horseback, he checks how far... I have said they have gone, and then he queries whether that's feasible or not within the time frame that I've that I've used. Um, he he writes timelines, so in the second book there is a period of about ten days when a lot of things happen, and he wrote out a timeline for himself with morning, afternoon, and evening of each of those ten days, and then he went through that section of the book filling in what happened on all those at all those times. And then he came back to me and said, actually, you've missed Wednesday afternoon. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> he said, nothing, nothing happens. So either you've got to put something in there or you've got to bridge that gap somehow or other. And he was quite right. When I went back and checked, I had missed Wednesday afternoon. <laughs> That's really handy feedback, actually. And if I were to ask you a bizarre question, uh, how far can you travel on a horse in a day you wouldn't know the answer to that would you well i would actually because um if, if you think about mary queen of scots she rode from jedburgh to hermitage castle to visit bothwell there and back in a day so she did 50 miles oh, wow that's some distance at some distance the horses back then actually could do much could travel much further than most of the horses nowadays would manage. Um, like people, they weren't quite so soft back then. Um, but yes, I mean, it's possible. That's that's quite astonishing, that 50 miles. That's a, a, a substantial uh, distance. Now, the, the book we've been alluding to is, is Turn of the Tide, which was published uh, 2012, as far as I can tell, uh, researching online. Now, 
that was traditionally published. And interestingly, yes. if you go onto Amazon, you can still see it. And it's one of these bizarre situations where that you've got one used copy at nearly £60 and one new copy at nearly £400. I'm never quite sure why that happens on Amazon. But you've, you've, you've presumably got the rights back because it's also been republished by the looks of it. Yes, I got the right rights back from Caper Cayley, who sadly are no more. Um, and then I I had to sell out the existing copies under their ISBN. But as soon as they were gone, then I reprinted with a new SBN under my own new imprint. And so it's back on Amazon with the new ISBN. But bizarrely, they won't remove that old edition no matter how often I ask them to. But the new edition is linked to the current Kindle editions. Yeah, it's frustrating. I, I got one of these. You, you learn all these things as you go along as a author, I think. I, I've got one of these bizarre books that I, I renamed and, and relaunched, and, I, and people are selling it for £400 or something. And like you, I wrote to Amazon and said, this can't be right. It's ridiculous. Why don't you take it off? But it seems that once it's there, it's there forever, isn't it? Apparently so, but um, there you go. Frustrating. <laughs> you need, so take care with your paperbacks. Now, having been traditionally published, how did you find the experience? With my traditional publisher? Yes, yes. Was it what you um, expected? They were very good at the physical production of the book. They were very good at providing me with a launch in Waterstones, which was wells and bells and whistles, rather, you know, with food and drink and um, very nicely done. And they were very good for about three months in terms of advertising and promotion and so on. But after that, then, you know, they had another new book coming out or and, and so on. And they began to do less and I find that frustrating um, and then I discovered that they weren't actually terribly good with either social media or with the ebooks. they didn't seem to have much of a clue really uh, I suggested they do a bookbub advert and I mean they did take up that suggestion and did it um, but that had to come from me. They weren't proactive in that way. So I began to feel that maybe it wasn't as good as it could have been. Having said that, though, I would not have had the confidence to go to self-publishing directly myself with that first book. So when did you start to think, hmm, self-publishing might be the way to go? When the second book was nearly ready, and they had a con I had a contractual obligation to, to send that to the publisher, and when it was coming to almost being finished, I was beginning to be a little bit disillusioned. But I knew that when they had the rights to the first book, I couldn't find another publisher for the second book. So if I was going to not send the second book to them, I knew I would have to do it myself. By that time, I felt I knew more about the process and was prepared to give it a go. So what I actually did was I read my contract very carefully, 
which stated that I either had to submit the whole manuscript or I had to submit a synopsis and then that would start a clock ticking and they had six weeks to make a decision. I decided to send them a synopsis that I wrote in about 10 minutes. Naughty. (laughs) (laughs) In the the hope that they'd turn it down. Uh, They didn't, in fact, turn it down, but they set out a time frame that I thought was unrealistic. And I came back and said, no, that time frame doesn't suit me. Um, Am I free to go elsewhere? And they knew that I couldn't go to another publisher with book two, as I did. But they said to me, if you want to try elsewhere, fine. I then went away and I spoke to the cover designer who'd done the cover of the first book, the printer who'd printed the first book, the distributor who distributed the first book, and said to all of them, if I do the second book myself, will you design, print, and distribute alongside that first book. And they all agreed. So I, I, I said to Caper Cayley that I wasn't happy with her time frame and I wasn't going to submit that. I wasn't going to, I wanted out of that contract. And I then brought out the second one. And the only person I needed to find was the editor because I couldn't use the original editor who was in-house. Now, what we should mention here is that you were also uh, very successful in the People's Novelist Competition in 2011. So uh, I'm interested to know what impact that then had on on your traditionally published book. You you would think that it was on the Alan Titchmarch programme, or he was the celebrity, and he was huge then, wasn't he? He was massive in 2011. He was everywhere at that time. So did did it give you a push? I think that was what gave me the first traditional publishing deal. I think that's why I was able to go direct to a couple of publishers, because I could say that I had won the historical fiction section in that HarperCollins Alan Titchmarsh competition. So I'm pretty sure that it would have been much more difficult to get that first deal without that competition. What it also did for me, though, was Jeffrey Archer was one of the celebrity judges in the final. I didn't win the final, but he spoke to me afterwards and was incredibly positive. And he um, subsequently told me, actually, that he had voted for me. But that's maybe... um, maybe some judice or something. But anyway, um, he gave me permission to use anything he had said in any way I liked, which is how he comes to be on the front of my book and on the back. (laughs) Use that celebrity link as much as you can. Now, I watched the YouTube video, and I'm going to put it on your page for the podcast, Margaret, so everybody can have a look at it. And it's uh, it's great because you've edited it really tightly so you can see all the bits that relate to you. So well done on doing that. But you've got some brilliant comments from the judges, from both sets of judges. I mean, really complimentary about your writing. And they also mentioned in there that there were about a 1,000 entries in that competition too. So it's a pretty stunning result for a first book. Yeah, I mean, I was absolutely delighted. And what was interesting about it was I nearly didn't enter because I tried the agent route and I had had a combination of 
responses back. I almost always got a personal response, which I guess is something, or people said it was something. Um, but there was always one of three comments. Either it was too Scottish to appeal to a you know a wider audience, or because I had a, a male protagonist and female protagonists are apparently a lot easier to sell, um, or most sort of dispiriting of all, that it was too well written to be truly commercial. So I nearly didn't enter the competition because I thought, well, I've heard all these people, all that these people are going to say, so what's the point? Uh, and then a friend said, well, look, it's a large brown envelope and you print out paper on your own, you know, your own printer at home. You shove it in a large brown envelope and you send it in. What have you got to lose apart from a bit of paper? And so I did. And I was very glad I did. Now, you were telling me about people saying, oh, it's too Scottish and things like that. And, and one word came to mind while you were saying that, um, Outlander which has, of course, been huge in the meantime. And that's everything about that Scottish, isn't it? Which must, must irk a little. Well, if Outlander had been out two years earlier than my first book, maybe things would have been very different. Because, I mean, it's, it's hit a mainstream audience. And I, I'm just, just interesting that you're getting that typical traditional um friction there people saying oh it'll never it'll never happen it'll never happen and I was talking to an author the other day or a screenwriter who was saying that um, one of the rules when he started in comedy was never write a sitcom about an office and then of course we all know what happened uh, one of the biggest sitcoms of all time was The Office uh, it's yeah. been huge you know so um, it's only human beings making best judgments and often they get it wrong I think yes but uh that's water under the bridge, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, but it was it was frustrating, and it's something that, as a historical fiction writer, that does frustrate me, in that there is a perception that if you're writing about anybody pre nineteen hundred, they have to be famous, they have to be a king or a queen or you know somebody really important. Whereas if you're writing about somebody in 2010, they can be Joe Bloggs at the end of the street. And, and that really frustrates me because I think, why can't you write about lesser mortals in historical terms? But the publishers say it's the marketing makes it difficult if nobody's heard of your characters. And yet, uh, one of the TV series that I'm completely enthralled with at the moment is on Amazon Prime. It's the Viking series. I don't know whether you've seen that. It is quite, um, you know, uh, quite bloody. But again, um, I, I think where historical fiction is so strong is that what that's made us do is we're sitting there with Wikipedia saying, "Oh, is that true? Is that true?" Well, um, because it's framed around real things that happened, uh, as your books are. And I think it could really bring people into uh, into historical place and time. Um, because it makes it, I don't know, more accessible, much more interesting, I think, engaging. Well, I think a historical fiction author's job is to make history engaging. And my aim is to transport people to a different place and a different time, somewhere that neither I nor they have ever been, and try and make it a you-are-there experience for them. And... All my short stories before I wrote that first novel were contemporary. 
And then I wrote a historical novel and people said to me, well, why have you suddenly written about history when everything you've written to date has been contemporary? And then I realized actually that my short stories were as far removed from me geographically, generally, as the novel was in time. So that I was really trying to do the same thing, taking people somewhere different and making it alive for them because I've stories set in Afghanistan and in Kenya and, you know, so on. World War One, Germany. Um, I like to go somewhere different. I like the challenge of that. Having traditionally published the first book and had that experience and great success with it as well, um, how did you find then when you self-published – how did you find that experience? Was it was it difficult to get to get it published, or did you learn anything from it? It was a very steep learning curve for that first one, which I don't think I could have done at all if I hadn't had the support of the printer and the cover designer, particularly. Uh, the printer held my hand the whole way, and were they were absolutely fabulous. I took a big gamble and I did a traditional print run based on the print run of the first book. And that meant that I was able to get a launch in Blackwells and a second launch in Main Street Trading, which is our local bookshop, but it was Independent Bookshop of the Year a couple of years ago, so it's very well regarded. Uh, because I had this traditional print run, because I wasn't doing print on demand, it was an upfront gamble. And obviously, money was involved in paying for that print run. But I ended up with a product that I was really, really happy with, and that people didn't actually know at all that it wasn't, you know, that, that I'd done it myself. In fact, there was one really amusing situation with the second book. I happened to receive an email from Publishing Scotland. And in it, I saw that the reading agency, I don't know if you're familiar with them. I'm not, no. No, you have explain right. what they are, yes. Right. The reading agency is a charity which is sort of designed to promote reading. Uh, particularly, they, they work a lot with school kids and so on. But I saw this little thing about the reading agency saying that they were they were wanting to do a promotion of six new Scottish books. And they were looking for publishers to send them in um, suggestions. So I thought, right, well, I've nothing to lose here. So under my Sanderling name, I sent in from the Sanderling um, email address the synopsis of the second book and said, you know, I would like this to be part of the um, promotion. And this wasn't under my own name because I have someone else who is technically the secretary of Sanderling. Um, and they came back and said they would let us, they would let Sanderling know in a couple of weeks. A couple of weeks later, they came back and said, yes, we want to feature this book. And they said, now, the week that we'll be sending out details of, of what reading group you've got to send your six copies to which would then be um, reviewed and discussed and it would go online the feedback from the readers and so on um, 
the week we're going to be doing that, we want to know where, whether we'll be able to get hold of you or not, or will you be at Frankfurt? <laughs> <laughs> so my friend, the secretary, said I want to go to Frankfurt, but naturally enough, she didn't. Um, but it just showed me that it's possible if you do it right for people to take it seriously and not realize actually that they're dealing with a total amateur. Um, I think what was important for me was setting up an imprint, buying the ISBNs, registering with Nielsen, uh, and you know doing all that side of it as if I was a mainstream publisher. And when you set up an imprint, what what does that involve? Does it does it just mean assigning a name to to a uh, creating a name for a publishing company and then getting your ISBNs not from CreateSpace but from Nielsen, the formal ISBNs? Basically, yes. Um, Caper Cayley's logo was a bird, was the Caper Cayley. And when I, with the second book coming out, I wanted it to be as indistinguishable as possible, really. So I went looking through a bird book to see if I could find another suitable bird um, to have as my imprint. And I discovered that most of the birds are already imprints. They seem to be really popular, you know, penguin and pelican and all kinds of other ones. Um, but I found this little bird called a sanderling, which is a, it's a seabird. Well, it's a, it's a beach bird, really. You mostly see them running along the sand. That's why they're called sanderlings. Um, and they're very fast and very small. And I thought, actually, that kind of suits me. So I'll go for that. So I chose that imprint. I got the designer who was doing the book cover to do a logo for me. And um, then I registered with Nielsen, which there's a registration fee first, and then you have to buy a, a, a batch of 10 ISBNs. In total, I think that cost £177. The next batch of ISBNs will be cheaper because there'll be no registration fee. But what that did was you then have to upload the book details onto Nielsen when you're ready to go. Or before you're ready to go. And what that does is that other places like Waterstones Online and so on pick up the book before it's even published. So without me having to do anything, it appeared on Waterstones Online as available for pre-order. Um, and that really worked for me. Now, you've also said that, uh, and you've got a video on your author page too, you, you, you seem to do a lot of in-person stuff. Now, um, at, at the beginning of this interview, you said that you had a lack of confidence to to, to write the long book. Yet, to me, see, I, I would never dare do an author event like that. I'd be petrified to do that. And and, and I know you do readings. You did a reading on the award on the uh, Alan Titchmarsh show too. That would terrify me. So so come on then. Is it just about having different types of courage, do you think? Because you don't. that doesn't seem to worry you. No, that doesn't seem to work. I'd, I'm not worried about that at all. Um, when I was at school, I, I loved being part of the drama society. And I also won a couple of poetry competitions at school, which meant you had to um, recite your winning poem to an audience of about 400 or so adults in for the school concert. I absolutely loved that. And 
we were taught when we were doing the 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 drama that you just picked a spot somewhere in the audience and spoke to that person and didn't really worry about the fact that there were 300 other people around them. And so that's always what I've done. But I love doing readings. I'm very happy doing other kinds of author events. And what I'm not comfortable with, which is a little bit of a problem for the self-publishing, is all the technical stuff. And I'm not terribly comfortable with marketing. But as author events go, I love them. Well, you're very brave. I mean, this is the crazy thing, you see, because I've been on radio for much of my life, broadcasting to thousands of people. But I, there's no way can I stand up in front of crowds. It petrifies the life out of me doing what, what you're doing. And it would actually serve me quite nicely now if I could muster the courage to do that. I mean, you've got another skill, too, which we can see reading about you online, is that you seem to be very, very good at competitions because you've got quite a, a list of successes behind you so so what is it with competitions is it just the entering them or have you got some tips for us with these um i'm not probably not the right person to give tips for competitions really except in the sense of i learned the hard way that you, you have to read very carefully the rules with that first novel i did actually enter it for a competition prior to the the alan titchmarsh one and the person who was judging said that I would have been among the winners if I had actually fulfilled the rule requirements, which were very simple. You were supposed to send two copies and I had only sent one. That's a bit churlish. Um, but it taught me a, a really good lesson, actually, that you need to really, really read the rules and go by the rules. And if they say it's 2,000 words, then you make sure that you're not over your word count. Uh, if they say that it's to be on a theme, then you have to think about writing to that theme. Um, but in terms of anything else, they're a little bit of a lottery, really, because it's in the end, it comes down to personal choice. My feeling is that if someone gets long listed or short listed for a competition, then effectively they're a winner because that final decision will be so subjective. All of the people on the short list or all of the people on the long list will have written a good story. So I would say to people, don't be disappointed if you don't get past that point, because it becomes very subjective. But as I maybe, as I think I said at the beginning, although I hone and hone and hone when I'm writing the novels, I kind of find for short stories, I don't really need to do that. They just, I just write them and they're basically done. And I don't know why that is. Now, we met at uh, in Edinburgh um, at the Amazon event. And um, it strikes me that uh, you told me that you, you struggle with marketing, but you seem to be incredibly effective at, at networking and doing face-to-face -face stuff. Would that be true? That's probably true, yes. Um, but I, I don't feel particularly, maybe I don't want to spend the time on marketing. That maybe is part of it. Um, but I don't feel confident in, you know, I don't have an email list set up and I don't do that kind of thing that lots of people say is really critical to marketing, which is why I have assigned the ebook rights. And I know it's the odd 
the wrong way around for most people, but I've assigned my ebook rights of the Scottish novels to Corazon to let them do the marketing. And I have kept the paperback rights myself. Now, would you just talk me through that? Because is that uh, who, who are they? What do they do? Corazon is a, a, a relatively new public. I'm not sure how many years Corazon's been, been operating for. Um, but they they do both print and ebooks. But when I was negotiating with them, I said I wanted to keep my print rights, and that's what's happened. Um, they do a lot of re-releases of sort of mid-20th century classic authors. Um, they do a lot of people like Catherine Gaskin. And they also do new authors. So I've assigned the ebook rights to them as of May, and they re-released the first two Scottish ones and have a contract to give them the third one shortly. And um, they do promotions and they, you know, get a BookBub deal or a Kindle Daily deal or whatever that would have been very difficult for me to get. And that's worked very well so far. And I'm just so relieved that, that I can leave that side of it to them. And I can piggyback onto it, actually, with the paperbacks. I, I think that's a really good point, Margaret, because one of the things I've been talking about recently is um, I think I like, like you, I, I like indie publishing. But there are some there are benefits sometimes. In your case, it's marketing. And, and I, I'm looking at maybe getting one or two place with, again, one of these le- less traditional publishing companies where you could just mix things up a little bit and the royalties are a bit higher because what I lose in royalties I will gain in knowledge or in something that I lack in my own skill set and I I think it's quite an interesting way to think that sometimes you don't have to do it all there are ways around it sometimes which is it sounds like what you've gone for yes uh I mean the the royalty share is the way I looked at it was that the royalty share was a lot higher than I got when I had a traditional publishing deal, fully traditional, because obviously the royalties on ebooks were fairly pathetic, really. Um, but I do obviously lose as compared to the 70% that I would get on KDP with Amazon. But on the other hand, it takes away from me what is the most stressful bit of the whole thing that I don't enjoy and leaves me free to take the time to concentrate on the events and the face-to-face kind of marketing of the paperbacks, which I do enjoy. So the the new book that's coming out, um, I've, I've actually got it completely myself at the moment, but I'm focusing very much on setting up events for that. So I'm going to be speaking in the in in a festival called Previously, which is Edinburgh's History Festival in November. And I've got other events built around that particular new book just now. And I can concentrate on them and I'm not I'm confident and easy about doing them in a way that I wouldn't be with the online marketing. I think it's a, it's a really good strategy, I think. And if you put a value on your time as well, if you think that that online marketing is going to take your time and it's yeah. time that could be spent doing activities that you feel that you're more competent at um, and have a higher value for you, I think it makes perfect sense, doesn't it, really? Uh, I mean, the bottom line 
if you want to be very pragmatic in monetary terms, if I do an event through the Scottish Book Trust live literature system, then I get paid £175 for an hour. Now, obviously, I've got to prepare for that beforehand, so it's not just an hour. But nevertheless, compared to the royalties on a book, it's quite a lot of books equivalent. Um, so I've decided I'm going to focus on building that side of my business as well as the writing. It's, it's very interesting. You're a woman after my own heart, Margaret, because I, I'm the same thing, because you can say I get paid so much per hour uh, and you're getting paid that because you are an author and therefore you have that credibility. And I do think it's an important point to for people listening that as an author, it's not just the income you make from your books. You can make other incomes too, as you are doing. Yes, and I think what is also important is to to think of yourself in terms of value that you have. And as an author, it definitely helps if you can build up your writer's CV in order to be able to do these wider things, uh, which is why for me, I try to get some kind of competition credit every year so that I have something new to put on that CV so that it's always being refreshed and kept up to date because that keeps my profile up and that in turn means that I get offered events to do. And that brings us very nicely onto the Historical Novel Society. You very kindly invited me to be a speaker uh, way ahead in, in, in August uh, 2018. Can you tell me a little bit about the Society and, and reassure me that you're not too wild a bunch, are you? Well, it depends what you mean by wild, <laughs> doesn't it? Um, we will be having a Kaylee on the Saturday night. Oh, I love a so, Well, there you go. <laughs> um, no, uh, Richard Lee started the Historical Novel Society. Oh, I, uh, I think it might be about 20 years ago now. I'm not 100% sure. Um, because there wasn't one for historical novels. And it has grown and grown. And now they have a conference once every two years in the UK once every two years in America. They also have one in Australia. Um, and it's it's focused on both history, nonfiction, and historical fiction. They also have a magazine that comes out four times a year. And they try to review it, as many of the historical fiction novels that are published every year as they possibly can. Some of them are reviewed in the magazine. Some are reviewed online. And it's just a fabulous opportunity for people who all have a similar interest to get together and feed off each other. I went to a couple of conferences, writers' conferences, before I'd heard of the HNS. And I guess I felt like Cinderella, really, because historical fiction wasn't one of the, the sort of big genres. Crime was, thriller was, police procedurals were, women's fiction was, but not historical. And um, when I found the HNS, I suddenly found I could go to a conference where there was a couple of hundred people who were all as obsessive about history as I was. And it was great fun. So I'm sure you'll enjoy it. I mean, we've been spreading it, making it broader in the 
well, my intention in organising next year's conference is to involve people talking about technical aspects of publishing as well as just the history aspects, because so many of us, even if they're mainstream published, are often hybrid and doing some of their backlists and whatever themselves or doing some things themselves that don't fit into the niche that the publisher wants to keep them in. And so all of us need to learn the skills and the technical um, stuff that is involved in self-publishing. So that's why I've invited you and various others to do various technical strands at the conference. Well, and I'm I, looking forward to it. Well, I love that stuff. So, you know, just 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 pile it on. I'm happy to talk about anything you want me to because that's that's my that's my geeky bit. I love that side of it, you see. I can't play with bits of software and things enough. So I'm very happy to to share that with you. And you've asked me to talk about Vellum. You wait till you see what Vellum can do. You're going to love it. It's an amazing bit of software. It's the best thing that's hit, I think, the indie scene uh, ever. It's brilliant. <laughs> I mean, if I could learn to do the formatting myself, that's one part of the technical bit that I would like to do myself. So I've got great hopes of Vellum. You will be astounded at how easy it is, Margaret. So you really will be. It's uh, it's brilliant, and it will change your life. It's changed my life because I, I, you know, I'm geeky enough to be able to do the Kindle books in code. Um, I've done it in Word. I've paid for it to be done. And the minute you process your first book with Vellum, you will fall in love with it, and you'll never go back ever again. So I'm using that as a little teaser for <laughs> for the Historical <laughs> Novel Society, just to build myself up a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> now we've been talking for an hour now so I, i'll need to bring the interview to a close so um congratulations on everything you've done and achieved and you sound like you're you're really on top of things what's what's next on the to-do list for you well the next year is going to be kind of busy because the book that's coming out in a week's time a week tonight in fact is the official launch at blackwells is a book the first of two books about Katerina von Bora, who was Martin Luther's wife. Because this is the Luther 500 year, I laid aside the third of the Scottish books, which I was halfway through, in order to write this Katerina book to hit the anniversary, which is actually October 2017. But now that it is on its way, I am back to writing the third Scottish book, I need to have it finished and presented to Corazon for the ebook in February. I need to have it ready for the paperback simultaneously. As soon as that is written and is in the process of publishing, I will be back to write a second book finishing the story of Katerina, and it needs to be out by next October. So I have to write faster than I've ever written before, effectively. After that, I have no idea. <laughs> well, if you compare it to the the two years that you took to write your first book, you're really putting yourself under some pressure there with those deadlines. I'm ramping it up rather, yes. Well, well, well done with that. Um, final question that is, where can we find out all about you online, Margaret? I have a website, which is www.margaretski.com, which has quite a lot of information on it, probably not as much as I should, but it is fairly comprehensive. I'm also on Facebook. Um, I have an author page on Facebook, and I'm on Twitter. But the two best ones really are um, the website, 
and the Facebook page, which is Margaret Ski Author. Margaret, that's fantastic. Thank you very much for speaking to us for the podcast today. Thank you, Paul. Thank you for listening to this week's Self-Publishing Journeys. If you enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with your indie author friends. Or you can leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whichever podcast directory you use. In the meantime, you'll find previous interviews and all the show notes at selfpublishingjourneys.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll have more great self-publishing tips for you next week.